Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. As always, I'm thankful to be with you this, this week back in the pulpit. I'm, I'm grateful to be back in, in the pulpit preaching this morning. As you know, I was in, uh, with my family in Guatemala visiting uh, my new son-in-law, Pablo's family, and preparing for Pablo and Chloe's wedding. Uh, so we now have a new member of our family, and we're so thankful for him uh, and, and for what the Lord is doing in their life. I'm just so amazed at what, at what he's doing uh, in, in and around their life. The trip to Guatemala was actually a, a highlight in many ways of my own life. For, first and foremost, I gave my older daughter, I got one other daughter that I look forward to doing this as well, but I gave my older daughter to a wonderful young man. <clears throat> I'm confident that, that God will use Pablo and Chloe in mighty ways. I'm also thankful for the ministry that actually brought Pablo to the United States. I was able, uh, this ministry, by the way, is, uh, is a, basically a soccer ministry. It's called uh, Buena Vista Boys. You can find it on the web if you're interested in what they're doing. It's an incredible ministry. I'm hopeful as a church that we will consider getting involved with them. But I was also able to get to know uh, Pablo's father. His name is Cesar, and I was, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain that I've never met a more godly man. He is a modern-day Stephen. He is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I, I say that. I don't think I'm overstating that in any way. As many of you know, I've told the story as we, over the past week or so, uh, Cesar has been bedridden for many years. He has a disease that is slowly attacking his, his body and it has rendered him almost completely unable to move. Yet, God has shown mercy on him in many ways, including saving him. And He has shown mercy on him by using his condition for his glory, for God's glory. And believe me, God has used this man mightily in ministry. From his bed, he has ministered to thousands of people. He is a powerful preacher of the gospel and has been privileged to lead many souls to Christ from his bed. I was there. I was witness to a, a dozen Americans coming in a group to visit him. And after he preached, after he preached for about an hour to them in this uh, hot room, there wasn't a dry eye in, in, in the place. And I can promise you it wasn't the sweat. It was the tears. Uh, one of the Americans responded after hearing Cesar preach. He says, I thought I came here to help you in some way, yet I'm the one who has been helped. Uh, just think of the picture of a man laying in a bed for 21 years. And that is the response after hearing this man preach. There was another story of two young men coming to visit him at his home a few weeks before we traveled there. One of them was a member of a local gang, a, a, a devastating gang that that was a brutal gang. And, and Cesar shared the gospel with this young man, and he kept saying, you don't know what I've done. And that man, that man again, was a part of, that young man was a part of this brutal and merciless gang. No doubt he had carried out brutal and merciless assignments in his life, in his very, very young life. And while we can't be certain, Cesar believes that, that this young man may have come to be a Christian on that day, and we certainly need to pray that he did because just a couple of days later, they found parts of his body. The gang had ruthlessly and brutally murdered him, and presumably because he was trying to leave the gang. And I firmly believe that, I firmly believe that this ministry that Pablo's father has, Cesar has, is one of God's mercies. 
He's laying in his bed every day, racked with, literally racked with pain. I mean, I, I don't know, I, I was there for in-country, I was in his home for almost ten days, nine days I think it was, literally racked with pain, yet God is using him miraculously to preach the Gospel. I'm thankful that God shows mercy to His people in a myriad of ways. In Cesar's case, He's used Him to preach the Gospel to vile sinners like that gang member. Speaking of that gang member, I pray that God did have mercy on His soul. Can you imagine a God who will save someone like that? That's the kind of God, that's who we serve, beloved. I love the following story told by Charles Spurgeon. As I tell it, I want you to think about that gang member that Cesar preached to. But I also want you to remember that God had mercy upon your soul. It says, this this story says, if you meet a sinner, do not turn your back on him as a Pharisee might, but help him all you can. For Christ helped you all he could. If it should cost you a great deal of trouble to win that soul for Christ, gladly put yourself to that trouble because Christ took so much trouble to save you. Spurgeon says this, A good brother said to me the other day concerning a certain boy that he was afraid that we should never do much with him because he was of a very corrupt origin. And I said, this is Spurgeon responding, I said, so were you. And he replied, I do not quite mean it that way. And Spurgeon replied, no, but I do mean it that way. He or she who is a son of a, uh, or daughter of Adam has a, a corrupt origin. As we all came from that source, we are all corrupt. Do not ever say of anybody, that person is too bad for me to do anything with him. It is the genius of Christianity to select the worst first. And we should never regard any man as utterly hopeless until he is dead. As long as the breath is in his body, even if all the devils from hell were also in him, there is enough power in the Lord Jesus Christ to make that whole troop of them fly, and it is for us to attack those devils in His name. Jesus Christ, having saved us, think about this, Jesus Christ having saved us, the salvation of other sinners must be possible. We need to to trust in that. He had mercy on our soul. He had mercy on us, and He can show mercy to the worst of the worst. Well, this morning we were returning to our study in Matthew called The King and His Glory. Today we've made it to Matthew 5-7. One verse, for those of you who came for expository preaching. One verse, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let us pray and we'll get, dive into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. And praise you that you can show mercy on our, you have shown mercy on our souls. Father, as we think about these stories of those who are of corrupt origin, in the words of Spurgeon, Lord, we do need to see that we are of a corrupt origin. That somehow, it, it isn't that we somehow showed or gained favor with you. It is by your grace and mercy that we are saved. May we ever see that and may we preach the Gospel even to the most corrupt in our eyes. Knowing, confident that You can save and that You do save. In Christ's name, Amen.
Let's read Matthew 5, 1-12 together. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and began to teach, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, in this introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, which we have called or we have studied over the past few weeks or even a couple of months, the king's manifesto for his kingdom, King Jesus reveals nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. Now, we've seen the first four steps, steps one through four. Now, we're today in step five that we would prefer mercy. Now, it has been a, it's been a few weeks, so I want to give you a quick review up to this point. Now, as we have seen, Jesus introduces his sermon with a series of beatitudes or blessings. We have completed the first four, as I've said, in Matthew 5, 3 through 6. Now, in prior sermons, we've answered the question, what does it mean to be blessed? And I define blessing for us as the state of happiness within our inward selves. This happiness <coughs> or this blessing comes from, or this happiness comes from the acknowledgement of the reality of how fortunate we are to be in Christ or to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. This relationship that we have, this reality that we have, this relationship that we have produces and a bliss, an inner bliss and contentment that comes from an ever-increasing recognition for all that God has done for us and that no circumstance or any set of circumstances can change our happiness or contentment in Christ. Now, we've understood that. <coughs> Excuse me. We've understood that any definition, like the def definition I just gave, a blessing actually falls far short of the incredible reality of the spiritual blessing that we have from God because God Himself is the source of that blessing. We can only be blessed or truly blessed by partaking in His divine nature. As the psalmist promises, in His presence is fullness of joy, and in His right hand are pleasures forever. Now we also have found out in our study that, that the blessed, those who are actually blessed, are those who have believed in the promises of Christ and are living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit living within them with an ever-increasing understanding of what He is accomplishing through Him. Now, or through them. Now, we need to keep these definitions, and the reason I keep bringing them up every Sunday that we teach through these Beatitudes is because we need to keep them in mind as we continue our study of the Beatitudes. 
Now, in his sermon, as, as we've said, in his sermon, King Jesus reveals nine steps to your purpose and ultimate blessing in this life and beyond. Well, the first step, then, is to possess true poverty. Now, look at your Bibles in verse five, chapter 5, verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, a few weeks ago, we attempted to answer what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, in, in making this statement, Jesus is saying God blesses a person who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy or their po- poverty, their uh, utter poverty. They have acknowledged that they are lost in sin, that they are hopeless in life, and they are helpless, literally helpless to save themselves. They, they see, they, must, they have seen then that they are un, utterly unworthy of God and are entirely dependent upon Him to save them. Now, they have acknowledged in their hearts, ultimately, the reason He says poverty, they have acknowledged in their hearts that they are spiritually bankrupt, they are spiritually destitute or bankrupt. And that's the reason Jesus says it is the poor in spirit who acknowledge this and acknowledge their need of Christ that they will inherit or possess (coughs) the kingdom. Put simply, becoming, becoming poor in spirit, being spiritually bankrupt, understanding how far short you fall of the God, glory of God is the entry point into God's kingdom. Now, let's review. The, that's the first step. The first step was to, was to possess true poverty. Let's review the second step. The second step, step two, is to persevere in learning what offends God. Look it back at your text in Matthew 5, 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as we looked at the context, we found that the second step, this second step, is the inevitable result of step one. So then what does Jesus mean by mourning, or, or those who mourn? Well, godly mourning, we found, is a deep and abiding sorrow produced by the knowledge of our sins, and how far short we fall of God's glory. This mourning can only be experienced by those who have recognized their spiritual poverty and their desperate need for God's mercy and grace. And now, we also have seen this, or we see this type of mourning in the lives of saints like Isaiah. We saw, or I just quoted, I think I just quoted Isaiah 6-5, and I prayed it earlier, where he says, Woe is me and in David in Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 51. Now, true, true blessing from God then comes as a result of our mourning over our sins. The, you know, the, the taking, understanding that we're poor in spirit and mourning over our sins, and that's where true blessing comes from. Now, the question is, how does God bless our mourning? We'll look back at your text in verse, five, in verse 4. <coughs> He comforts us. They shall be comforted. And, then, and so we have to understand that the comfort that Jesus is referring to is a supernatural comfort. A, a supernatural comfort that can only come from God Himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And He, he provides this comfort or encouragement that comes from the Father and the Son. And as a believer, as believers who have come to our, the knowledge of our sin, we come to understand how far short we, we fall of the glory of God. Uh, we, God then, we then mourn over that. We mourn over the fact that we have, we have fallen so short, and ultimately that causes God to comfort us from on high. 
Now the question is, how do we receive that comfort? Well, again, we come to this understanding of the dreadfulness of our sins, and, that's the, the, and that begins at salvation. But we have to understand this isn't a one-time event. This, there is a, this is a continual process in the life of a true believer in Christ. As those who are growing in our understanding of holiness, ultimately the holiness of God, we are constantly faced then with the reality of our sinful flesh. But in this... God, the Holy Spirit, comforts us with a comfort that can only come from God Himself. So, the first step is to possess this true poverty, this true understanding of how far short we fall, this true bankruptcy. The second step is to understand what offends God and mourn over it. And understand that God will give us comfort. But step three then is to pursue lowliness. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, blessed are the, whole, are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Now the word low, lowly has been translated by, by various translations as lowly, gentle, or meek. But, but the question is, what does Jesus actually mean by the lowly? Well, the lowly are those who have come to understand their utter unworthiness in the light of God's holiness. They, they recognize their sinfulness and how far short they fall of His glory. And, and those who are lowly place no confidence in their own flesh. They find their strength in, in God alone. They have they've committed their way to Him and, and they fully rest in Him. They have come to see their need to trust and delight in Him alone and have cast themselves on His mercy and trust Him for His protection. <coughs> So, what does Jesus mean when He says the lowly will inherit the earth? Well, God made man to inherit and enjoy and rule over His creation. Currently, as we look at our world, the world around us, we see that wicked men rule the earth under the power of Satan. But one day, the righteous, the lowly, the gentle, the men who love Jesus will take their rightful place in ruling over God's creation. That is God's promise. They and they only, the lowly, will inherit the land and will delight themselves in God's abundant peace. And Psalm 37, 11, but the lowly will inherit the land and they will delight themselves in abundant peace. It is a promise. This leads us to step four. <clears throat> step four. And now, you have to see these build upon each other. They build, they were building on each other. And it points to being the right kind of person in Christ. And step four then becomes uh, pursue, a man who, or a person who pursues righteousness. So step four is pursue righteousness. Look at your text in, in chapter five, verse six. Again, this is review. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We live in a country that, is, that has plenty of food and water, yet we all recognize our need for these basic necessities. In the world that Jesus inhabited, they certainly couldn't be taken for granted. If you didn't have them, especially water, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't uh, have any other thought other than finding them. You see, even in, our t in today's world, we recognize that we need a, a steady and ample supply of both food and water to be able to prosper. We can't even survive more than a few days without them, especially water. And, and Jesus teaches us that those who have this level of hunger and thirst for righteousness, those are the ones He blesses. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means that we, are, we, we understand and we recognize that we are completely parched 
and we're starving for righteousness. Now the question is, what does He mean by righteousness? The first step is salvation. First and foremost, He's referring that Jesus is referring to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God that is imputed to the believer at salvation. This righteousness comes from God through the work of Christ. In Philippians 3.9, the Apostle Paul argues that he does not have a righteousness. This is Apostle Paul talking. He says, I do not have a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. So it's faith in God, and God imputes or gives us the righteousness of Christ. Paul also captures this very truth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is in Christ. And so the truth that we're finding here from the Apostle Paul is that when we truly believe, when we place our faith in Christ, God places us in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 3-14, Paul describes our great salvation And it's amazing as you read through those verses, we won't read them today, but if you read through those verses, he says that we are in Him eight times in those verses. In other words, being in Him is the dominant description of our salvation. And being in Him means that we have been imputed or ascribed His perfect righteousness. And it is that righteousness, His perfect righteousness, that we are to hunger and we are to thirst for. Jesus in Matthew 5-6 is referring to that righteousness. His perfect righteousness. At salvation, we come to hunger and thirst for His perfect righteousness which is then imputed or ascribed to us by God. But the second, that's the first step, salvation. But the second step is sanctification. When speaking of sanctification, it is the, this ever uh, continual, ever present hungering and thirsting for His righteousness. This continues as long as, the, as we're here in this present age, as long as we recognize that we fall short <coughs> of, the, of the righteousness of God. You see, from a salvation point of view, In Christ, we are positionally righteous. Paul says that we are in Him. We are positionally righteous, but we're not practically righteous. Sanctification then is this continual process of becoming what we already are in Him. The question is, what does Jesus mean when He says, for they shall be satisfied? I believe that's the paradox here. Uh, When we hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness, we will be satisfied in Him. Yet, we will go on hungering and thirsting for more of it. That's the paradox. That is until glory. Now, what I want you to recognize, part of the reason why I went through that extended review, is because the first four Beatitudes deal principally with the inner man. They deal principally with the heart and the mind of the man. They are what makes us truly Christian. They are what give us a godly and holy character. (coughs) But this leads us to the second set of four. They are what you might say, 
the practical outworking of those hard attitudes. John MacArthur observes that those who are truly poor in spirit will be merciful. Those who mourn over their sin will be pure in heart. Those who are lowly will be peacemakers. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You see the connection. So the the first four deal principally with who we are. The next four deal principally based on who we are and what we do. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up this way. He says that a Christian is something before he does anything. We have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. Being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action. To be Christian, I say, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones again, is to possess a certain character and therefore to be a certain type of person. So often, so often that is misinterpreted and people think that what the New Testament exhorts us to do is to try to be Christian in this or that respect and to try to live as a Christian here and there. Not at all. Again, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Not at all. We are Christians. You get that. We are Christians. It's who we are. And our actions are the outcome of that. End quote. Did y'all get all of that? It's important to understand. That's what he's getting at. That's what Jesus is getting at in those first four Beatitudes. Now we're going to this, the next four, and what we're going to find is, what we're going to find is, is that they're an outworking of who we are. Put it to you this way. We are made to be Christians by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Therefore, we are dominated by the truth of Scripture, God's truth. It is who I am in Christ that drives me to do good works, not the other way around. We have to get that. It's who we are that causes us to do good works. That's James 2. For those who are equipping, equipping this morning, that's where we're going. It's who we are in Christ that makes us do good works. It's not the other way around. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's Galatians 2.20. As a Christian, I am now controlled by the Spirit who lives in me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, puts it this way. His Spirit controls me at the very center of my life. Controls the very spring of my being. The source of my every activity. So, Christianity then, this is, that's the end quote. Christianity then is something that happens to us at the, at the center of our being. Jesus gives us a new nature. <coughs> he breathes new life into us. And this changes everything about us. It changes how we think. Our inner thoughts and our attitudes. 
It changes how we view life and how we view death. It changes how we view ourselves and how we view others and how we view the the world around us. We literally become a new person, a new man with all new affections. We become what we could never have been in the flesh. In in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if he is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, we become spiritual. And we are able to then discern spiritual things. We're no longer fleshly. (coughs) That doesn't mean we don't have the flesh. We still do. We still battle the flesh. But we become spiritual. Again, I love the words of Paul in in 1 Corinthians 2.12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths uh, graciously given to us by God. You see, we are a new creation uh, with new affections. Therefore, uh, we can understand spiritual things and, and, and it changes our actions and we become who we are because of who we are in Christ with the Holy Spirit living in us. We become, become to act in new and godly ways. You've got to get this. That's the first four Beatitudes. That's who we've become. So, this leads us to then the first of those new ways of acting. These are the practical outworkings of these new inner heart attitudes. Step five. Step five. We finally got to it. You will prefer mercy. Look at your text in Matthew 5.7. Blessed are the merciful. So there it is. God blesses the truly merciful. And so the question then, what does it mean to be merciful? Well, truly, we need to be precise. I said that a few times the other day, I think, in, a, in, our pod, in our Fresh Bread podcast. We need to be precise. We need to have a precise understanding. We can't have muddy thinking. The, the Greek word has the idea of being concerned about people in their need, uh, being sympathetic or compassionate. The word uh, meaning charitable was derived from that same Greek word. But that's not, that's not enough. It ha- it ha- this has the idea of giving to someone in need, but, but there's more to it than that. Being truly merciful not only accounts for our actions, but it accounts for our self-attitudes and for the situation that we're in. Again, remember the first four Beatitudes changes our inner heart. It makes us a new person. So now, uh, being truly merciful accounts for that new, being that new man in Christ. You see, we can fake sympathy. And we can fake compassion. We can do it for self-gain or self-congratulation. Or we, can, or we can be merciful when it doesn't cost us anything. Many, many people look at mercy in a selfish way. They give mercy only when they believe they will receive it. Yet there's, a nuance, there's another nuance here that we need to recognize. Being merciful doesn't mean that we overlook justice. Justice and mercy must go hand in hand. Uh, just a few days ago, I saw a news article where Governor Ron DeSantis fired an Orlando DA because she was refusing to prosecute hardened criminals. She decided to show mercy, that is, quote-unquote, mercy toward drug dealers and convicted felons with firearms, etc., 
It all came crashing down around her when a known gang member was arrested for the triple homicide of a nine-year-old little girl, a journalist who had actually done work here in Gainesville, and a 38-year-old woman. He also shot, just you know, for extra, he shot two other people who didn't happen to die. This, this is a worldly brand of, of mercy devoid, devoid of justice. This is not biblical mercy which goes hand in hand with justice. The truly merciful person, the truly merciful person does not overlook sin and lawlessness. It, the truly merciful person does not smile at, at injustice. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, mercy and truth are met together. And if I can think of mercy only at the expense of truth and law, it is not true mercy. It is a false understanding of the term, end quote. As we think of Jesus' meaning here, we need to understand the culture surrounding Jesus and His disciples. Much like our own culture, much, much like the days that we live in, mercy wasn't valued. Showing mercy actually was considered the least of the, of the virtues if it was considered a virtue at all. The Romans didn't care for mercy at all. They saw it as a weakness. One Roman philosopher called it a disease of the soul. The Romans glorified justice and courage and discipline and power. They looked down on being merciful. Roman men treated women and children the way our society treats the unborn today with no mercy. They, they didn't value mercy in their culture. And, and by the way, we don't value it in ours either. Even among the Jewish people. The, the Pharisees taught that it was only necessary to show mercy to someone when they have shown mercy to you. They didn't value mercy in their culture. And again, we don't value it either. You know, I noticed more recently, Keith and I were talking about it over the last couple of days, I've noticed a move toward mas a masculinity among some in our society in response to the feminization of men. And believe me, I'm on board. Some of this has been good. But there are men like Andrew Tate and, and Jordan Peterson who are leading proponents of this, of this response. Uh, David Goggins is another name. My fear is that absent of a true biblical understanding of masculinity, many men will begin to act like those Roman soldiers glorifying mercilessness. That's my fear. We need true masculinity. We need true masculinity, but we need to have an understanding of mercy and justice, a biblical understanding of these. John MacArthur puts it simply, a society that despises mercy is a society that glorifies brutality. End quote. While, again, the Romans were, not, were merciless, the, the, the Jewish establishment were not known for their mercy either. In Luke 10, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan highlighted the general lack of compassion among the re religious elite. They were proud. They were self-righteous. They were judgmental. Uh, they, they, these character traits are certainly not inclined toward mercy. Truly, in Jesus' day, just as in our own day, you show mercy when it benefits you. You show mercy to your own. You certainly don't show mercy to those who you deem unworthy of mercy. That's the world's view of mercy. But, 
as we work through to understand these Beatitudes, to understand the, the heart of our Lord Jesus, we need to keep reminding ourselves. We cannot interpret these by worldly standards. As we look at being merciful, we can't see this as a natural disposition. In other words, some are born more naturally inclined toward being merciful. Again, remember, the first four Beatitudes are all about a rebirth. All about being a new creation. All about changing our affections. And these Beatitudes need to be viewed as a whole. In, In the first four, we see this wholesale change in the inner man. This change is supernatural, brought about by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as we look at mercy, we're seeing or we're speaking of the supernatural, not the natural. You get that? We're speaking of supernatural, not the natural. Some among us may be more naturally inclined toward mercy, but we must remember that that type of mercy is fleshly and will always fall short of God's glory. Now, we've discussed the pitfalls and the misinterpretations. So the question is, what is this mercy that God blesses? Well, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful. He says the best way of approaching the definition of mercy is to compare it with grace. So the question then is, how is mercy distinct from grace? It has been said that grace is especially associated with men in their sins. While mercy is especially associated with men men in their misery. You see, grace deals with our sin. In other words, grace makes a provision for our sin, while mercy deals with the miserable consequences of our sin. Let me say that again. Grace makes a provision for our sin, while mercy deals with the miserable consequences of our sin. Now, we have to recognize... We must recognize, you should see it in your own life, that sin always brings about suffering, does it not? Your sin will always bring about suffering, whether it's your suffering or others. For example, drunkenness is a sin, right? Drunkenness, the result of drunkenness always produces misery for the drunkard and for his victims, whether his victims are the ones he killed on the street or his family that has to deal with the outcome of it. But it always produces misery. The merciful will have a sense of pity toward the sinner as they endure the consequences of their sin. And that sense of pity always will result in action. I've told you on a few occasions that I did jail ministry in Los Angeles. Most of the men, most of the men, you know, most men in jail are not guilty, right? Well, we all know that's not true. Most of the men in that jail had committed crimes. They had, there was a reason for them to be there. Some had committed heinous crimes. Most deserved to be there suffering the consequences of their sin. True mercy is showing pity and giving comfort as they suffer those consequences. I'll never forget, a, I'll never forget one man who had killed another man. According to his story, I, I met with this guy for months. I, I sat down with him for months. 
<clears throat> according to his, <clears throat> excuse me, according to his story, uh, the victim charged him. He was on the street riding his bicycle. He was a young man. He was on the street riding his bicycle. The, the victim charged him, and he pulled a gun and killed him. The problem was, if that was a true story, the problem was he ran. He got scared and he ran. The police caught him ten years later. Ten years later. After he had married and had a young son. This, this young man, or older man at this point, would show me letters with pictures his son had drawn. He would tell me about the conversations with his son asking when he was coming home. Now, that man deserved to suffer the consequences for what he had done. But mercy says that we need to have compassion on him as he suffers those rightful consequences for his sinful actions. You see how justice and mercy work together, right? It's interesting. It's interesting that in most of Paul's epistles, he says he begins with a salutation or a greeting of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see this in Romans 1.7 and, and 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Ephesians 1.2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in 1 and 2 Timothy, he says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and, our, and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's 1 Timothy 1.2, and he says exactly the same thing in 2 Timothy, Timothy 1.2. For some reason, <clears throat> excuse me, for some reason, he, he felt compelled to add mercy to his salutation to Timothy. Now, I would argue that it points to Timothy's suffering for the cause of Christ. You get that? You understand what I'm saying? So I would say, I would argue that Timothy. In in eyes of Paul, Timothy was suffering for the cause of Christ. Therefore, he added the mercy piece to it. So grace, mercy, and peace. You see, Paul must have seen Timothy's trials and difficulties and was compelled to show mercy toward him. This is even more amazing when you consider Paul's immense suffering on his own. But regardless of the reason... There is a clear distinction between grace and mercy. Again, grace speaks of forgiveness of sin. And, and mercy speaks of, of comfort in the, in the, with the consequences of sin. So what does true mercy look like? Well, I think we have to recognize what defines a worldly mercy. And we kind of already looked at it, but we'll look we'll just briefly. We, uh, worldly mercy looks for the world to reciprocate. And that worldly mercy looks for some sort of gain. Worldly mercy looks for praise from others. Uh, worldly mercy looks for mercy from men, or is mercy from men. On the other hand, true mercy, true mercy recognizes that it may not be reciprocated by men in any way. Our Lord Jesus was the most merciful man ever to live. Was he not? He is the supreme example of mercy. While he was here on earth, he healed the sick. He restored, <clears throat> restored the sight to the blind. He made the cripple to walk. He made the deaf to hear. He found the miserable 
and He restored them to life. In Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like His brothers in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Yet, yet, His own people mercilessly condemned Him to die at the hands of the Romans. The Romans brutally and mercilessly beat Him and hung Him on the cross. You see, Jesus was the supreme example of being merciful. Yet, He did not expect mercy from men. Where did He expect mercy from, beloved? You see, if if we are merciful, God will repay us with mercy even when men don't. He will give us compassion and He will give us comfort even when we are ignored. When we're beat up by the world, He cares for us. Looking back at Matthew 5-7, you see, we're promised to receive mercy from God, not men. When we show mercy to others. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But it's understood that it is God who gives the mercy. God will show us mercy whether people do or not. Whether we receive mercy in this world or not, God will, has promised and will give us mercy. It is from Jesus Himself that both redeeming and sustaining mercy come. Practically speaking, you might ask then, how do I know if I'm truly merciful? Perhaps the best way to know is to see how you view and treat your enemies, especially when they are under your control. This is where it gets hard-hitting, beloved. You see, we all have people who have sinned against us, have we not? There are times, there are times when providence gives us power over them in some way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, is helpful here. He says this, Are you going to say, well now, I'm going to exert my rights at this point. I'm going to be legal. This person has transgressed against me very well. Here comes my opportunity. That is the very antithesis of being merciful. This person is in your power. The question is, is there a vindictive spirit? Is there a spirit of pity and sorrow, a a spirit, if you like, of kindness to your enemies in distress? End quote. So to break it down, you have power over this person. This person has wronged you in some way. The question is, are you going to exert your rights? Are you going to take the opportunity to to put the the thumb to them or, or put the thumb screws to them? Or are you, going to be, are you going to pity them and have sorrow and show kindness to them in their distress? Perhaps you've never had that opportunity. But in your heart of hearts, I want you to think of someone who has wronged you. What would you do if, you were under, if they were under your control? Ask yourself that question. What would you do? Someone who's truly wronged you. What would you do if, if in God's providence you found yourself under, or their, their self, them under your control? Would you be vindictive? Would you be merciless? Or 
would you be merciful and forgive? That's the question. In the words of John MacArthur, forgiveness flows out of mercy and mercy flows out of love. You see, I told you earlier the supreme example of mercy is Jesus Himself, right? When He had the opportunity to call down legions of angels, what did He do? He went to the cross. He suffered the pain. And He did so because He's showing mercy for you and me. He did it out of love. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So the question then becomes, what about God's mercy on us? We've already glimpsed at this, but look back at your text in Matthew 5-7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, there is a great promise here. God will give us great mercy. And, and here's, a, here's what's amazing. His mercy is only limited by our willingness to receive it. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of his, of his light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. End quote. If God's mercy flows out of His love, then we can see how God's mercy is unending. I love the, the words of the hymn, The Love of God. The final verse goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? And were every stalk on earth a quill? And every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You know, that's, he speaks of that as the love of God, but it is His love that mercy flows from. There's a story of a poor woman from the slums of London. She was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday at the ocean. You see, she was from London and she was poor and she'd never seen the ocean before, but when, and when she saw it, she burst into tears. Those around her thought it was strange that she would cry when such a lovely holiday had been given to her. Why in the world are you crying, they asked. Pointing to the ocean, she answered, this is the only thing I have ever seen that there was enough of. When we think of God's mercy, beloved, we must remember God has oceans of mercy. There is enough of it. And God delights to show His mercy and compassion. I love the words of the prophet Micah. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and, and He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, God has shown a great mercy toward us. And those who have received mercy and forgiveness are expected to be merciful. 
I can't think of any greater way of displaying godliness than forgiving others and showing mercy toward them. The question as we stand here today, as we close, is have you turned to the Lord Jesus in saving faith? Have you received mercy from Him? We're all sinners. Every one of us. We are in need of God's grace and His mercy. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If you have not called out to Him in faith, you stand condemned in your sins, but God stands ready to show you mercy. He stands ready to comfort you. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Don't let another day go by. Don't let a second go by without doing so. Heavenly Father, we thank You this day for Your goodness. Father, I pray that we have just a little better understanding of Your mercy and how great it is. And that You bless those who are merciful. And that the only way that we can be truly merciful is if we're in Christ. And we're walking in Him. And we're imitating Him. Father, may we be truly merciful. Even to our enemies. Even to those who have sinned and continue to sin against us. Father, may we be more like Christ. As He went to the cross, showing mercy upon those who mercilessly sent Him there. In Christ's name, amen.